All right, everyone, good morning. Glad to see everyone this morning. It's good to have you all here. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us this morning before we get into Sunday school, and then we'll look at another book in God's Word. So let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity where we can look at a book of the Bible. And it's good to be able to pause and go book by book, slowly through your Word, giving the context, giving the overviews of all of these different letters and books and writings and poems. I ask that you would help us to step back into the first century and see what is going on, see what is happening, be able to look at this with fresh eyes and learn, and then that you would move this truth deep into our hearts. I ask that your spirit would do that as as we look at these words just in our own fleshly hearts. There's a veil. There's an inability to see what is truly there. And so we ask that your spirit would remove that, give us the right minds and hearts and eyes to be able to to see and understand these things. And I pray that you would bless our effort in looking into your word this morning. I pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I'd like to start this morning with an illustration, if you would bear with me and just think through this illustration. So this is a hypothetical situation involving Redemption Hill, our own church. Imagine that as Pastor J.D. and Stephen are ministering in our body, there comes to us a group of people who desire to undermine their leadership. This opposition isn't bringing up biblical matters of disagreement that are legitimate, but they're maliciously spreading lies and twisting the truth about our pastors. It starts subtly, but then it gets more aggressive. They start poking fun at our pastors' lives, pointing out their flaws and questioning their authority. They point to the suffering that they and their families have gone through and say that that is actually a sign of weakness and inability. They point to their lack of degrees from big-name seminaries and question whether they really know what they're talking about. And they even poke fun at our pastor's style of preaching and their physical appearance, demeaning them in any way possible. And as they spread this vicious attitude, many in our body start to agree with them and begin opposing our pastors as well. Our church begins to show major signs of disunity, and we become more focused on which side we're on than, more than we are concerned about the gospel. We're more concerned with being right than being loving. And sinful attitudes and actions are running unchecked. And while much of the disagreement and animosity occurs out of earshot, on one Sunday there's even a public display of mockery and opposition to our leadership. We are not in a good place. Now in this terrible situation, this hypothetical, by the way, this is not actually happening here, But in this terrible situation, how do you think J.D. and Stephen would respond? Think about it. They would be deeply, personally hurt by the ringleaders of this opposition, but also by the beloved members of their flock who are joining in. They would be frustrated at the way that people are twisting things and turning them against them, and they would likely have a righteous anger at the way that they had been treated and the way that their God-given authority had been undermined. They would bear with their opposition as long as they could in loving patience, but at some point, they would speak strongly to restore order. Out of great emotion and pain, but also out of deep love and desire for restoration, they would proclaim the word of God and show that they have been given by God as our elders. They are servants of God and show that the actions of those in opposition were unbiblical and unloving. Now, this is the exact situation 
that Paul found himself in as he wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians. It's not pleasant for us to consider what might happen if something like this happened to our own body, but I shared this illustration to help put ourselves in the sandals of the Apostle Paul. The nature and the content of the book of 2 Corinthians will make much more sense if we can understand the situation that Paul was in when he wrote this letter. And we'll dive deeper into that context in just a moment as we cover the background of the book. The background will be our first large section, the first half of our content this morning. And we'll look at the author, the historical setting, and then a few characteristics of the letter. Then equipped with this context, this background, we'll move to the second portion of our lesson, which is the outline of the book. And we'll walk chapter by chapter through the book to see the content. But let's begin with the background. As we've already stated, 2 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul. We see him identified in chapter 1, verse 1, where he states that Timothy is also with him as he writes. It's Paul and Timothy writing this letter. Paul actually penning it, Timothy with him as he does so. Paul and Timothy were both involved in the planting of the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 18. And there's almost no opposition to the fact that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. It contains a huge amount of personal details that only Paul would have known. And it also includes a lot of things that would have been potentially humiliating to an author um, that Paul was willing to share about himself. But that would be very unlikely for someone to try to pretend to be Paul. If they were pretending to be him to gain authority, they wouldn't share these types of details. And nearly everyone in the beginning of the church ascribed this letter to Paul. But as simple as it is to identify the author, it's just as difficult to unpack the entire historical setting of the letter. But that's the next section we'd like to tackle, the historical setting. First, let's begin with a bit of geography. And I brought a map um, to help us just get a little bit more of the context. These are often in our Bibles, especially if you have a study Bible. This is just something from the ESV study Bible for Corinthians. But it's helpful to understand the geography of where Europe meets Asia, down at the southern portion where they meet. We see some of the, the main areas that will be involved in Corinth. In the west, you can see modern-day Greece, and that is labeled as Achaia. Achaia and Greece were known as the same area at this point. And then strategically located at the center of Achaia is Corinth, right inside that black circle. Corinth was a major city in Achaia, and often when you see Paul mention Achaia or Greece in 2 Corinthians, he's referring specifically to Corinthians, just, or to Corinth, just using shorthand for the entire area, but he's really speaking about that city. Now, in the east, you can see modern-day Turkey, or what they then knew as Asia or Asia Minor. Located on the coast was the city of Ephesus, which is an important city for the setting. And then lastly, in the northern part of this map, you can see an area of modern Greece, which in ancient times was called Macedonia. And this area had the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. So these are the major areas we're going to talk about today. Achaia, where Corinth was, Asia, where Ephesus was, and then Macedonia. Now, I highlight these areas to give a bit of context because Paul was traveling quite a bit through these different areas. So it's helpful to just get a little bit of a refresher of where they are. And I would, again, encourage you to use a study Bible. Use notes when you see all of these references to places and times and trips because it is fairly complex to unpack. Now, Paul also mentions a large number of visits and a large number of letters. And it becomes confusing to know which one he's referring to if we don't set them in order. So I have a brief 
history, a brief outline of the different events that have led up to 2 Corinthians. Now, as I mentioned before, the first step in Paul's relationship with Corinth was when he came to the area to plant the church in Acts chapter 18. This was in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. And when he planted the church, God enabled him to minister effectively there so that he spent 18 months preaching the gospel. At the end of this time, Paul returned to Jerusalem and to Antioch and then began his third missionary journey where he visited many of the same churches and planted some new ones. This journey took him to Ephesus, where he hunkered down and ministered for nearly three years, again because God allowed him to have really effective ministry. And it was during this time where Paul was in Ephesus that many of the events leading up to 2 Corinthians occurred. In Ephesus, he heard about a situation of the immoral brother in Corinth, and he wrote what was called the previous letter. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, he says, I wrote to you previously, and that's a letter that he wrote to them that we don't have any longer. Next, in Acts 19.22, Paul sent Timothy to Corinth. He sent him to perhaps deal with a situation, perhaps to send the letter. But the situation worsened because Paul received further correspondence from Corinth as they wrote him many questions that we see him answering in 1 Corinthians about marriage, about meat offered to idols, all these different questions. And then we hear him say, there's people from Chloe who came, and they told me that the church is in disunity. There are divisions there. So he has written to them. Now they have written back, and he has heard other things back. And so as a result, Paul writes his second letter to the Corinthians, and that is actually the letter of 1 Corinthians, because it's the first one that we have still today. Unfortunately, it appears that it was not received very well, because we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that Paul traveled personally to Corinth to deal with some of these issues. And in, in 2 Corinthians 2, he calls this a painful visit. This visit didn't go well either. There was frustration, there was difficulty, there was something that made it painful. And this visit is actually not recorded for us in the book of Acts, but we can know that it occurred while he was at Ephesus. He probably made a short boat trip over the sea to Corinth and then back while he was spending those three years in the city of Ephesus. Now, this trip was likely painful because of the opposition that had arisen in Corinth. There was a group of people who were undermining Paul and causing many in the church to turn against him. They came bearing letters of commendation where other people were trying to give them human authority, and they were trying to establish that against Paul's God-given authority. This opposition made fun of Paul's physical appearance. They made fun of his style of preaching, his style of ministry. They questioned how he handled his finances. They pointed to the suffering that Paul had endured, and they tried to say that no one who was truly endorsed by God would really suffer this much. God wouldn't let them suffer that much. And it's likely that this opposition was Jewish and similar to the Judaizers that he mentions in other epistles. To cap it all off, Paul says in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians that this opposition is proclaiming a false gospel to the Corinthians. And it's likely that this opposition found purchase due to some of the difficult things that Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians. Paul commanded them to discipline an immoral member who they had previously approved of. Paul rebuked them for suing each other and for abusing the Lord's Supper. Paul advised them that many of the assumptions they had to him when they wrote with all these questions were really wrong assumptions, and they were wrong about a lot of things. And so Paul likely would not have been the most popular man in Achaia. 
These enemies took advantage of that. In an effort to exercise greater authority than a letter, Paul traveled briefly to Corinth to deal with these matters himself, but sadly this visit doesn't seem to go well. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 tell us a little bit of Paul's attitude, where he says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? He's saying, I didn't want to push you over the edge and lose you as friends. And so, after this painful visit, Paul returned to Ephesus with the situation still roiling. Rather than coming again in person, in a last-ditched effort, Paul sent Titus in his place. And he sent Titus with a letter known as the tearful or severe letter, which he describes in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This letter was harsh. It called the Corinthians to repent of their attitude towards Paul and to embrace him as a true apostle. Paul says he wrote the letter out of love and out of deep personal anguish and distress. It would be interesting to read this letter, but sadly, we have neither this severe letter nor the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, which he mentions in 1 Corinthians. And this goes to show that God didn't preserve every piece of parchment that Paul ever wrote, which is okay. We're not missing any letters from the canon that God desired to provide us with. We truly are not missing these things. Now, after writing this severe letter, at the end of his third missionary journey, while he is awaiting Titus' return, Paul finished his ministry in Ephesus and then left. He traveled north in Asia Minor to Troas and then continued to Macedonia, likely going to Philippi, where he had previous contacts and where he would have been known. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2 and 2 Corinthians 7 how anxious he was to hear how this letter was received, and joyfully for him, he finally was met by Titus in Macedonia. And Titus delivered the good news that the severe letter that Paul had written to them had been received well, and that the church was evidencing repentance over their sin. And this is really the turning point in Paul's relationship with Corinth. After he writes this severe letter, they finally start to get it. They finally start to repent. And it is only after these first nine events, after Paul meets Titus there, that we get to our book today, 2 Corinthians. After all of these things have happened, after all of this heartbreak and history, finally at the point of repentance, while Paul is in Macedonia with Titus, he writes 2 Corinthians to the church at Corinth. He's writing to express his joy and gratitude that the Corinthian church was repenting and obeying, but he's also still beleaguered by this course of events, and he knows that his opponents are still present in Corinth, even though they're beginning to, the church itself is beginning to repent. And so he also writes extensively to defend his ministry, to defend the legitimacy of his apostleship, and also to expose the falsehoods of his enemies. Paul wrote this letter at the end of A.D. 55 or the beginning of A.D. 56, about one year after he had written 1 Corinthians. And then finally, the last piece of uh, event that happened in uh, all of these situations is that Paul visited Corinth 
after he wrote 2 Corinthians ahead to kind of clear the way to prepare the church for him, he actually went down and visited them. Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3 says, When he, Paul, had gone through these regions, which is referring to Macedonia, which he just mentioned in verse 1, after he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. Again, when he's referring to Greece, he's referring to Corinth. The place he stayed in all of Greece and all of Achaia would have been Corinth. That would have been his home base, his church. And he stayed there for three months. This means that he was actually accepted. He had some effective ministry there. After all the back and forth, after all the arguments, after all the opposition, Paul actually was able to minister and restore his relationship in Corinth. This gives us reason to believe that the Corinthians continued in their initial repentance and received 2 Corinthians well. That is an encouraging turn of events. Now, the historical context of 2 Corinthians helps us to understand the letter significantly better. We are able to see why he's saying some of the things he does What are all these visits he's talking about? What are these letters he means? But it's also helpful to see a few unique characteristics of the book before we go through all of the chapter content. First, 2 Corinthians is deeply personal. And that is something that you see in some of the other letters in the New Testament, but probably only the book of Philemon is more personal than the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul includes many passages describing his prior travels and his travel plans in the future. He describes his own thoughts and emotions extensively. (coughs) And he opens himself up so that the Corinthians could see how much agony and distress their disobedience had caused him. And because this letter is so personal, it doesn't have the same tightly wound logic and rhetoric and structure that many of Paul's other epistles do. When you're writing a theological treatise like Romans or Ephesians, you spend a lot of time setting up your structure. But when you're pouring out your heart to a flock whom you love and have been deeply hurt by, you can actually be less organized. It's okay to write more from your heart than from your mind. Erasmus, who was a a theologian in the Middle Ages, wrote that 2 Corinthians was a river that sometimes flows in gentle streams, sometimes rushes down as a torrent, bearing all before it, sometimes spreading out as a placid lake, sometimes losing itself, as it were, in the sand, and breaking out in its fullness in some unexpected place. As you read 2 Corinthians, you'll notice that the subject seems to change drastically and quickly, and that Paul seems to be all over the place. And so it's helpful to remember the backdrop of his writing. That will help you understand and bear with the apostle as he pours out his soul to you. It's okay that he's actually changing the subject and writing from the heart. Now, second, 2 Corinthians is highly apologetic. And I say apologetic here not in the sense that Paul was asking for forgiveness. That's not what he's trying to do here. It's apologetic because he's making a defense. As he writes, knowing that the church has responded well to Titus and the severe letter that he wrote to them, But also knowing that the opposition still remained there, Paul was stating his case one last time to pave the way for his third visit. After the previous time he visited, that painful visit, after that went poorly, Paul changed his tactics and he was trying to prepare them for this final visit where it would be the final showdown. He focused mainly on the nature of his ministry 
versus the nature of his opponent's ministry. And it came down to the issue of authority. Who was truly approved by God? Paul describes himself as a servant and a minister of Christ, showing his submission to the true Lord. (coughs) But on the other hand, he refers to the opposition not as servants of God, but as servants of Satan. He also calls himself an apostle, a messenger of Christ who is truly endorsed by him, while he refers to his opposition sarcastically as super apostles, as in like they had created this new entity that didn't really exist. Or he'll call them a false apostle. Paul also contrasts where he boasts. He boasts in his weakness. He boasts in Christ. He boasts in whatever glorifies God, even if it humbles Paul. However, the opposition boasts in their letters of human commendation, what other people say about them. They boast in their own human authority, and they boast even in the money that they've taken from the Corinthians. Paul uses the word boast 32 times in these 13 chapters, and he's clearly delineating that the opposition has incredible arrogance, while Paul, as he says in chapter 12, verse 9, in words that are very familiar to us, Paul will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may boast, or sorry, may rest upon me. Paul also spends a lot of time talking about money. When he planted the church in Acts chapter 18, he did so with the support of other churches. Paul didn't take a paycheck from those in Corinth as he was ministering there for 18 months. And the opposition looked at this as folly. Why would you work and not get paid? They looked at it as a red flag. Paul had to be swindling the church, or what he had to offer couldn't be worth anything if he didn't take any money for it. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul shows how foolish this line of thought was, and he exposes his opponents as themselves being greedy for money, while he was actually acting out of love. How could it be greedy if he wasn't charging them? Paul says, that's foolish. That's silly. So 2 Corinthians is deeply personal. It's highly apologetic. And lastly, it's incredibly intense. Given the circumstances, this really isn't that unexpected, given all that Paul had gone through with this church, with the many letters, the many visits, the pain. Paul is at the end of his rope, and his expressions of joy and frustration are not tempered. He doesn't hold back. His highs are high and his lows are low. And so you may end up cringing at some of the things that Paul says, some of the harsh words that he uses but they're actually fitting for the audience and the situation that he is dealing with. It also may seem confusing to read some of Paul's arguments, especially as he deals with this opposition, and that's because he's incredibly sarcastic and satirical. So in chapter 11, he wants to point out the the folly of the boasting of his opposition, and you can hear the sarcasm dripping as as he says this. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, But even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. You can hear him saying, this isn't really true, but this is what you think. So I'm going to say it back to you, and you can hear how silly it sounds. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we are too weak for that. You can hear the sarcasm here. And that can be kind of tricky because if you read what he's saying at face value, it's really confusing. 
You're saying, is, does Paul really believe that? He doesn't. He's writing sarcastically. And that can be difficult to pick up on, so it's helpful to be aware going into the letter that he often writes with this biting sarcasm. So that is our background. We see the author, the historical setting, these characteristics about the letter. And now we're armed to look at the content of the book by looking at the outline. Before, before we do the outline real quick, though, I would say this book, you can tell by the, the difficulty of the situation Paul is writing from, this is what makes it such a meaningful letter to so many people, especially to those in ministry who have experienced this type of backbiting, this opposition, this unfaithfulness. This book can really be a balm, in many ways like the Psalms, to those who have experienced a similar situation. And for even those of us who are not in ministry, but have experienced suffering and difficult situations and maybe heartbreak, 2 Corinthians is deeply beneficial, and I would encourage you to turn to it in times of difficulty. But with all of that, let's look at the outline. 2 Corinthians breaks down into three different sections, and you could describe these sections as referring to the past, the present, and the future. And they also lay out Paul's threefold purposes for the letter. First, in chapters 1 through 7, we see the past. These chapters can be summarized as a defense of ministry. This is where Paul is defending his own ministry. He's defending what has occurred in the past. And this is one of his purposes, to defend his own ministry. In these chapters, chapters 1 through 7, Paul spends extensive time explaining his own actions as well as his motivations, and he focuses on the nature of his ministry. Chapter 1 begins with a familiar explanation of God's comfort in verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And Paul is not just explaining how to think about suffering, although there is a, a truth that goes on, an eternal truth there that is not bound by time. But Paul is also defending his own suffering in the moment. He's saying, I didn't suffer because I'm a weak imposter, as the opposition said. God brought me suffering so that I could comfort you. And now that you're going through this suffering, you can see how this is beneficial to you. He's speaking to the Corinthians deeply from the midst of this contextual situation. Later on in chapter 1, Paul explains why he didn't come as he said he would. It seems like after he left his painful visit, he had made plans to visit them, but then changed his mind and decided to send this letter first. And so the opposition took that, again, as a sign of weakness and wavering. See, he doesn't keep his promises. He doesn't come when he's going to say he would. And Paul says this was actually done out of love for them because he didn't want to crush them with the condemning presence that perhaps they deserved. Rather, he was going to send them this letter. And in chapter 2, he explains, he sent Titus with this severe letter to be a lighter rebuke than his presence would bring. Chapter 2 also brings another example of Paul's heart. In verses 12 and 13, he describes how he traveled to Troas, up in Asia Minor, 
to meet Titus, and he was hoping to get news from Corinth. And even though God gave him opportunities to share the gospel, he gave him a wide open door for ministry, Paul was so unsettled over these events in Corinth that he left Troas. He didn't even fully take advantage of what was going on there. Instead, in verse 14, as he describes how he left seeking Titus, but he's still focused on this door that God had opened to him, he starts exulting in God's work. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. And we see a two-pronged design here in what Paul says. First, Paul rejoices that God is always leading him and caring for him, giving him even this opportunity in Troas to share the gospel. Paul is recognizing God's sovereign hand here in his own ministry and saying, this isn't from me, God did this. But second, he's poking at that opposition again. Paul can't help what he smells like. Paul has the aroma of Christ. That's just truth. He can't change that. And so if you don't like the smell, that means you don't have the spiritual nose to smell it. If the opposition doesn't like Paul's message, it's not a problem with Paul It's a problem with the opposition. They are peddlers of God's word. They're seeking dishonest gain. Paul, however, is sincere. He's commissioned by God. In chapter 3, Paul describes his ministry further, showing that he is completely aligned with the new covenant that Jesus initiated. And this new covenant is superior to the old covenant, which even had glory for what it was designed to do. And the opposition was likely promoting adherence to the Mosaic law in addition to the new covenant. Paul shows that the new covenant gives life in a way that obeying the law never could. The problem is again with the opposition, not with Paul, because this opposition is veiled from understanding the truth. However, Paul says that the new covenant brings great hope. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul shows that true change comes from the Holy Spirit, who transforms people into the image of Christ. Obeying a set of rules, like his enemy prescribes, could never do that. Being a part of this new covenant ministry gives Paul confidence because these words are not coming from him, but from the Spirit. And so the next words he says, the first verse of chapter 4, are, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Paul doesn't need sinful methods to do ministry. The God whom he serves has power to accomplish exactly what he desires to do. 
And Paul explains in chapter 4 that this is absolutely necessary for him because Paul doesn't have any power in and of himself. Rather, as he says in verse 7 of chapter 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay, referring to his own physical body and capabilities. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He goes on in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the right perspective towards suffering and weakness. Unlike the opposition's perspective, when Christians endure hardship, it doesn't mean that they are being judged or proven illegitimate. Rather, our temporary, weak bodies and difficult, overwhelming circumstances are actually gifts from God to remind us of his surpassing power, of his eternal goodness. They are meant to point us and others to Christ. Paul continues explaining this in chapter 5, explaining how the brevity of our lives should cause us to consider the coming judgment, where the thoughts, deeds, and actions of every person will be evaluated. And this motivates his ministry. And in verses 11 through 21, he gives some of the most in-depth insight into his heart about his ministry. I'm going to read some of the verses from this section. Verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Once again, we find a glorious double purpose in what Paul is writing in these words. On the one hand, this is one of the clearest explanations and exaltations of the sacrificial, substitutionary atonement of Christ. Jesus became sin so that we could become righteousness. Anyone who trusts Christ and is therefore united to Christ in Christ, that person is a new creation. The assurance of our salvation as people here in this church is based on the truth of these words from Paul. But the second purpose is that Paul is actually sharing these truths to defend his ministry. He's explaining that he was commissioned by God to be a minister, an ambassador of these very truths. The need for the atonement compels him. It controls him 
Not money, not glory, not fame. He is controlled by the need for people to hear the gospel. This should be true for any minister of Christ. In chapter 6, Paul drives home his goal. Because of the true, legitimate nature of his ministry, the Corinthians need to follow him. He says in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. You are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Chapter 7 contains a great deal of detail about the events leading up to the writing of 2 Corinthians. And here we can learn much of what Titus reported to Paul. In chapter 7, verse 5, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, this is when he was looking for Titus going up to Macedonia, likely Philippi, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, and here he's referring to that painful letter he had sent with Titus, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that your, the, the letter grieved you, though only for a, a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And here in the next verses, verses 10 and 11, we see a classic explanation of the true nature of repentance. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Paul concludes this first section of his letter by commending the initial repentance of the Corinthians and by encouraging them to continue with more of the same. That is the defense of his ministry, the record of the past events that have happened in chapters 1 through 7. And that brings us to the second section of the letter, chapters 8 and 9. And these chapters deal with the present, and in them we find an appeal for continued repentance. Or, you could say, an appeal for generous giving. Because another one of Paul's purposes in writing this letter was a gift that he had asked them to contribute to. In 1 Corinthians 16, we see him saying, set aside some money, because there was a need in the church in Jerusalem. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul describes how the churches in Macedonia, that is the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Bereans, they had given even though they were impoverished. They were in poverty. Whereas the Corinthians, in an affluent city, likely having many more means, hadn't given yet. And likely all of these different things that have happened in the go-between between Paul and them have given them reason not to give him all of their money quite yet. And so Paul's opposition was warping his request for these funds, trying to say, okay, well, now he's just trying to get all, the, all your money. In reality, Paul just wants them to love their fellow believers and to be generous. And he sarcastically implores them in chapter 8, verse 7, As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, 
see that you excel in this act of grace also. He's saying, if you really think you're so good in all these areas, make sure you're generous too. Be consistent. Chapters 8 and 9 give us some of the most beneficial instructions regarding giving in all of Scripture. They are formative for our mindset of generosity. And it seems like they were effective for the Corinthians as well. In Romans 15, 26, which Paul wrote while he was staying in Corinth in those three months after this letter, Paul says that Macedonia and Achaia, which means Corinthians, the, the Corinthian, Macedonia and Achaia had both contributed to this gift for Jerusalem. So this writing, uh, to be generous, seems to actually have been effective. Now, the first two sections of 2 Corinthians dealt with the past and the present. They presented Paul's defensive ministry and his appeal for their continued repentance. The third section, chapters 10 through 13, deals with the future. Specifically, these chapters serve as a condemnation of the opposition. They contain Paul's most pointed attack at his opposition, condemning their actions and calling them to repent. This is what is about to happen. Now that we've explained what has happened before, encourage the Corinthian church to do what is right now. He's saying, well, this is what's about to happen. I'm about to have a showdown with these enemies. Paul prepares them for his visit, which is soon to come. And in chapter 10, he discusses his methods. His boldness is not meant to frighten, but to wrestle back the authority from these false apostles. His means are not fleshly tools like the opposition uses, like their letters of commendation, but they're spiritual. In chapter 10, verse 3, he says, Though we walk in the flesh, like we have human bodies, we're, we're normal people, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The opposition boasts in their physical abilities, but Paul boasts only in the Lord. Chapter 11 is particularly cutting against the opposition. Paul ruthlessly and sarcastically exposes their false motives. He accuses them of being servants of Satan, deceiving the Corinthians like Satan deceived Eve. They preach a false gospel, pretending to be true, but in reality serving the enemy. And he says in verses 13 through 15, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul finishes chapter 11 by describing how his accomplishments in ministry dwarf those of the enemy. Some of these are their areas of boasting. Paul is a better Jew. He's a better servant of Christ. But most of these comparisons lie in Paul's suffering. Paul was willing to endure anything for the sake of Christ. And at the end of chapter 12, excuse me, at the end of chapter 11, you can find a long list of the things that Paul has endured for Christ. But chapter 12 describes perhaps the most incredible aspect of Paul's ministry. In verse 1, he says, I must go on boasting. Again, you hear the sarcasm. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. 
And he heard things that cannot be told, which, may, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in my weaknesses. Now, that man is actually Paul. But in his humility and in his sarcasm, he won't say that it's him, even though it's obvious. He goes on in verse 7. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest in me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this really summarizes Paul's heart in the entire letter. He is willing to endure anything. A thorn in the flesh, condemnation by these false apostles, rejection by the ones he loves so dearly. He will endure all of them if it means that his weakness glorifies God. The same cannot be said about his opposition. And sadly, the same cannot often be said about us, especially myself. Paul finishes his letter in chapter 13 with a final call for obedience. The situation is dire. Paul is about to come. And the way that the church, and especially this opposition, will respond will be telling about what they truly believe about Christ. Will they obey the servant of Christ, or will they continue to respond in sin? After a whirlwind of defense, accusation, pleading, rejoicing, tears, and sarcastic attacks, Paul concludes his letter with a final encouragement to his beloved church. And in verse 11 of chapter 13, he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Let us bear the same conclusion in mind as we seek to deal with weaknesses, with suffering, with disunity, with sin. Armed with the ministry of the new covenant, with the glorious truth of our justification in Christ, let us aim for restoration. Provide comfort to one another and pursue unity and peace. And as we do, the God of love and peace will be with us. Praise the Lord. And we are dismissed.